Hello everybody, happy Mother's Day, and welcome back to the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. I want to apologize ahead of time if my voice is a bit dry on this episode. Since it's spring, my blood is coursing with Claritin, and it really tends to dry me out, so we're going to do our best. Today we're going to be talking about the Galician Soviet Socialist Republic, which existed solely in 1920, but we're going to start by winding the clocks back a little bit more to 1917. There are actually a couple of Galicias in the world, and this is not the one in Spain. This one's over in Eastern Europe. It is the name for the Polish-Ukrainian border region. So, since we're in Eastern Europe in 1917, our story is going to start with World War I. 1917 was pretty late in the war, and at this point the Russian Empire was falling apart due to their civil war and communist takeover, and Germany was capitalizing on the situation by pushing pretty hard towards the east. During this offensive, the German Empire conquered what we would now call Poland, and on January 14, 1917, they established the Kingdom of Poland although it was a German puppet state, it was by no means independent. In order to really drive home the fact that this was a puppet state, the Germans set up a government under a regency council instead of an actual king for the Kingdom of Poland. And this worked alright for them for a while, but by late 1918, things were not going so well for the Germans in the war anymore, and the Poles saw this, so the Regency Council mutinied and declared their independence as the Republic of Poland. A little over a month later, on November 11th, 1918, World War I ended, and the map of Europe, especially in the East, had been dramatically redrawn. The old empires of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia had fallen, and they'd been replaced with a bunch of new countries like Czechoslovakia, an independent Poland, Romania in a much larger form, Hungary, Austria, and Yugoslavia. And of course, the USSR. This was a very delicate situation, but the Allied powers that had won the war had a vested interest in maintaining the post-war balance of Eastern Europe, and they saw any effort by any country to expand their territory as a threat to this balance. However, the worst case scenario for the Allies would be specifically Poland deciding to expand their borders. Poland directly bordered both Germany and Soviet Russia, so any Polish expansionism would be the most likely thing to cause Germany and Russia to begin plotting together, which the West really wanted to avoid. And the Allies seem to have definitely been correct about trying to avoid this, because Germany and Russia plotting together against Poland is the exact thing that would eventually cause World War II. Of course, no one could have predicted that at this point in history, but it is worth mentioning. So, with the balance of power teetering ever so delicately in Eastern Europe, Vladimir Lenin, the leader of Soviet Russia, decided to move in on the region. Lenin wanted to reclaim the former territories of the Russian Empire and eventually expand his reach all the way to the German borders, where he hoped to spark a socialist revolution in Germany that would further empower Soviet Russia. Then, just to upset things even more, two days after the war ended on November 13, 1918, ethnically Ukrainian troops declared the independence of the West Ukrainian People's Republic in East Galicia, which Poland also laid claim to. This new Ukrainian state had no international recognition, and Poland's borders were very poorly defined at this point, 
so the only real thing left for the two countries to do was fight it out. But that would have to wait, because on January 15, 1919, the Soviets captured Vilnius, which is the capital of modern Lithuania. Now you may be saying to yourself, okay, so there's Russians in Lithuania, why does Poland care? But Poland and Lithuania have a very long shared history. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a monarchy that lasted from 1569 to 1795, so the Poles took this conquest very personally. So, in early February, Polish troops began their march east to meet the Russians in battle and hopefully claim Vilnius, or in Polish Vilno, for themselves. Apparently no one thought to actually ask the Lithuanians what they wanted, but that's just the way it goes in Eastern Europe in the 1900s. And this brings us to February 14th of 1919. It was Valentine's Day, and the Poles were feeling rather lovable, so they decided to give their Russian friends a gift and met them in battle near Biaroza in modern Belarus, where they handily defeated the Soviets. This caused the Russian offensive to grind to a temporary halt, and the Poles stopped there too because they were fighting a war on two fronts with both the Russians and the Ukrainians. During this brief ceasefire, the political map of the region got even more complicated because in late March and early April, both Hungary and Bavaria, which is a region in Germany, established themselves as Soviet republics. This meant that Poland now stood between Soviet Russia and these new states. The Allied powers in the West started to get a little bit antsy over this, so they began to do their best to define the internationally recognized borders of Poland. But Poland was not very ecstatic about this because they saw it as foreign meddling, which it pretty much was. Poland probably didn't spend too much time being upset about this, though, because on April 16th, they decided they were doing pretty good in Galicia against the Ukrainians. So they shifted troops towards Vilnius, and 5,000 men, led by Joseph Pilsudski, who was the Polish chief of state, set out for the Lithuanian capital which they managed to capture in just three days. Apparently, they took about three months to celebrate because the next major development we have in the war comes in July, when the Polish finally dismantled the West Ukrainian People's Republic. With this victory, the Polish were able to exert military control over the entire Galician region, which boosted their morale even further. They followed up on this victory by taking Minsk from the Soviets in August of 1919. Minsk, by the way, is the capital of modern Belarus. Now, at this point, Poland's eastern border stretches as far north as Lithuania and as far south as Romania. I bet you didn't know there was a point in history where Poland was considered a regional superpower. In fact, at this point, they were doing so well that Pilsudski claimed he could march all the way to Moscow and, quote, no one would be able to resist my power, unquote. Of course, in reality, there's no way that the Polish would have been able to take Moscow without significant help. At this point, the Russians were still embroiled in the middle of their civil war, so even though it looked like they were just losing over and over again to Poland, which they were, they were fighting a war on about 15 fronts at once, so they really had bigger fish to fry. 
At the end of the day, though, if the Soviets decided that the Poles stood as a massive threat to them, they would have been able to crush them even just on sheer military numbers alone, let alone their skills and tactics. Speaking of the Russian Civil War, by the way, it's at this point that we hit a little bit of a diplomatic snag. After taking Minsk, Pilsudski stopped his offensive against the Soviets. Not because he feared the Reds in any way, but because he did not want to bolster the position of the Whites in the Russian Civil War at all. In Pilsudski's eyes, the Whites posed far more of a threat to Polish independence than the Reds ever would. This is for two reasons. One, the Whites' ultimate ambition in the Civil War was to regain power and reestablish the Russian Empire, which in turn would try to reabsorb Poland. And two, at this point, since Pilsudski had done nothing but defeat the Reds in combat, he saw them as an amateur force that would be easily defeated if they had to be. So because of this, when the Western allies reached out to Pilsudski in hopes of Poland aiding them in their intervention in the Russian Civil War, he refused. Now, hypothetically, if Poland had allied themselves with the Whites, they may have been able to help topple Soviet Russia then and there by actually marching on Moscow with significant foreign aid. But that's just not the way the dice rolled. So, Soviet Russia survived, and Poland's wars raged on. In April of 1920, Pilsudski allied with Simon Petliura, who was an ethnically Ukrainian general and the leader of the Ukrainian People's Republic. Petliura was fighting his own war against the Soviets, and he desperately needed Polish help, so in return for this alliance, he relinquished all Ukrainian claims to eastern Galicia. Of course, the Ukrainian general had no real authority to do this, as his Ukrainian People's Republic held only a very thin stretch of territory on the Polish border, but it was optics, and optics is all that matters. So, now that they were allies and not enemies, the Poles and Ukrainians began a joint offensive against the Soviets, with the goal of taking all of what's now modern Ukraine from the Russians, and adding it to the Polish-dominated territory in the east. The Russians fell back fast against this joint invasion, and by May 6th of 1920, the Soviets had ordered the full evacuation of Kiev. The next day, the Polish-led troops captured the city, but this wasn't really the victory that it may seem it is. With the capture of the Ukrainian capital, four major problems for Poland arose. First and foremost, the bulk of Poland's army was now deep in Ukraine, very far from Poland itself, and they had not actually decisively beat any Soviet armies so far, as the Russians had just kept retreating and falling back in the face of the invasion. A second major issue is that once Vladimir Lenin saw that the Polish had taken Kiev, he immediately called for a total war against Poland, and 40,000 Soviet troops instantly mobilized. Third, Poland's border with Soviet Russia was now 750 miles long. That's almost the distance from New York City to Savannah, Georgia, and it's a massive expanse to hold with a land army. And that brings us to the fourth and final problem. The amount of troops that it took to man a front of this length meant that there were hardly any rear reserves. So if an army were to punch through the Polish front line, there would be pretty much nothing stopping them from rampaging through the entire territory. 
And that's exactly what happened a week later when 75,000 Soviet troops attacked the Polish in Belarus. Even though Poland themselves had 72,000 troops in the area, they were spread so thin that the Russians managed to punch up to 60 miles beyond the front lines in some areas. Now in a slight state of panic, on May 25th, the Polish reserves were called up and 32,000 troops were mobilized to the Belarus area in hopes of stopping the Soviet offensive. Poland also expected a simultaneous attack on the Ukrainian front, so they established a standing army of 57,000 men in the area in order to stop this. And it seems that they did this just in time, because that same day, on May 28th, the Russians attacked Kiev. It took only a week for the Soviet cavalry, which the Poles had long regarded as weak and useless, to split the Polish army in half out in the open field and cause mass destruction to the entire force. Things were going a little bit better for Poland up in the north. Three days after their defeat at Kiev, the Polish combined frontline troops, reserve troops, and some of the newly arrived Ukrainian front troops managed to regain most of the lost land, but they went right back to their thinly stretched frontline technique, and of course this would eventually spell disaster for them. On June 10th, just five days after their disastrous defeat on the fields outside of Kiev, the Poles evacuated the city and the Russians retook it. And here's a little fun fact for you. According to Sean McMeekin, the professor of European history at Bard College, this was the 16th time that Kiev had changed hands since the start of the Russian Revolution, which was just over three years before. Imagine the town in which you live changing ownership between countries at an average rate of once every 10 weeks. I'm sure this was a very confusing time to be a resident of Kiev. But it was probably an even worse time to be a Polish infantryman, because on June 16th, during their retreat back west, they started to become encircled. So they fought all guns blazing in order to avoid this, and they succeeded in escaping, but it came at a great loss of both men and equipment. For the next few weeks, the Polish kept retreating while launching failed counterattacks against the Soviets, and as a result, Polish-Ukrainian morale was plummeting fast, and surrender was starting to look very good to a lot of the men. On July 5th, the Polish-Ukrainian army was ordered to retreat across the Zbruk River, which is in very western Ukraine, and this signaled to many of the men that they had officially lost the campaign. The Poles and Ukrainians were now in as weak a position as ever in the area, so on July 15, 1920, the Communist Party of Ukraine, which was a puppet party founded by Lenin, ordered the establishment of a Galician Soviet Socialist Republic. That's right, it only took three years of narrative, but we are finally talking about the country in the title of this episode. By August 1st, the Russian army had secured the area, so the Galician Soviet government moved in and immediately released a whole slew of declarations. Included in this list of declarations was their intention of establishing a permanent Soviet power in the region, and they declared that the official languages of the Galician Soviet Socialist Republic would be Polish, Ukrainian, and Yiddish, which is the language of the Ashkenazi Jews. In typical Soviet fashion, they nationalized all of the land that they claimed ownership of, 
they abolished the private ownership of the means of production, and they established a work school. Their final two declarations might sound familiar to my American listeners out there. They established an eight-hour workday, and they legally separated the church from the state. So don't ever say you have nothing in common with Eastern European communists from a hundred years ago. In late August of 1920, the Galicians tried to hold their first round of elections and establish a real government, but this was a lot harder than they wanted it to be. See, the country had three official languages because Galicia was a very ethnically diverse region, and this made political elections pretty complicated. For example, a disproportionate amount of government volunteers were ethnically Ukrainian, as there was a general attitude among Ukrainians in the area at the time that they must not let only the Poles and the Jews run things, or they would be overlooked. The Ukrainians were also unified in that they hated Simon Petliura. He was the general that had allied himself with Poland earlier in the war, and to the Ukrainians of the region, this was traitorous. These ethnic tensions were exacerbated by the fact that the government had actually legally defined how much of each ethnicity was supposed to sit in on government councils. All committees were meant to be half Ukrainian, a quarter Jewish, and a quarter Polish, but as you can imagine, favoritism and nepotism set in pretty easily among the higher-ups, so whichever of the three the head of the committee was ended up being the prevalent ethnicity and language in each meeting of the government. One government official described how the leaders of the committees would assign their countrymen to as many jobs as possible, and then impose their own language as the official language. He does note, however, that Yiddish never managed to become the official language of these committees, so it seems that things were not going well for the Jews of the region, just for something different. And despite the best efforts of Ukrainians, the recent military history of the area, meaning the conquest of it by Poland, meant that the economic, education, and military staff of the Galician Soviet Socialist Republic was almost entirely Polish-speaking. This was made even worse when the Russian government announced their plans to one day set up a Soviet government in Poland, which would in turn absorb all of Galicia. This was a problem for the Ukrainians because Eastern Galicia, which is the region that the Galician Soviet Socialist Republic actually held, was mostly Ukrainian. And though these Ukrainians wanted to be part of a Soviet Ukraine, they were a minority in Galicia as a whole. So the Poles and the Jews just went on speaking only Polish and ignoring them. But the Ukrainians didn't have to worry for too long, because on September 15th of 1920, a Polish counteroffensive finally worked and forced the government of the Galician Soviet Republic to flee the capital. Because of this sudden Polish victory and immediate Galician collapse, on September 21st of 1920, the Galician Soviet Socialist Republic was officially disbanded by the Russian Soviets, and its former government simply became a part of the government of Soviet Ukraine. So in the end, it looks like the Galician Ukrainians got what they wanted, although probably not at all in the way that they thought they would get it. So with the birthday of July 15th, 1920, and a death date of September 21st, 1920, the Galician Soviet Socialist Republic lived a whopping 68 days before it disappeared into the textbooks of history. 
Speaking of disappearing into history, why did this country get forgotten? I think there's two reasons for this. For one, this was the 1920s, and the number of failed Soviet governments that appeared in this decade is truly staggering. So the Galicians were just one among many, and easy to forget as a result. And secondly, this being the 1920s, it falls in what we call the interwar period between World Wars I and II. A lot of times, especially in the West, when you're learning about history in high school or even in college, it goes something like World War I happened, it ended, and then World War II started, and that also ended. And you don't really talk about what happened in between at all. And when it comes to the 20s, you only ever hear about the Roaring 20s, where you'll talk about flappers and cocaine, and definitely not diplomatic irregularities in Eastern Europe. So there you go, that is the story of the Galician Soviet Socialist Republic. Thank you all for joining me on the History of Forgotten Lands podcast, and I hope to see you again next week.